the biggest challenge isn't necessarily data related rather than consumer education related. That's part on us as financial organizations to responsibly support consumers to understand the benefits and potential risks that come with the wide range of Zen AI models that are out there. Hi, and welcome to Credit Shift. My name is Paul Sweeney. I'm the Chief Strategy Officer at Webio. This podcast will be about how to embrace the digital future of credit and collections and all things AI and technology. Join us for the conversations that matter around credit and collections. Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to this Credit Ship podcast. I am Dan Bogoevich, Director of Decision Sciences at Optima Partners. I'm joined today by my co-host, Paul Sweeney, co-founder and CSO at Webio. And I am delighted to welcome our guest, Marilena Karanika, who is the head of uh, data innovation at Experian. With more than 10 years experience in credit risk analytics in the financial services sector, a key area of Marilena's expertise is enabling organizations to make better use of data to make more intelligent decisions. Um, in recent years, Marilena and her team have uh, created and launched machine learning products utilizing open banking and transactional data to help businesses understand the impact of COVID, the cost of living crisis on their customer portfolios. Marilena is passionate about uh, financial education in the society, and she frequently delivers university uh, uh, guest lectures and also industry talks on this subject. And she was also voted Innovator of the Year 2021 in the Women in Credit Awards. Marilena, it is really great to have you here today. Really good to be here, Dan. Thank you for the invite. Marlena, you are the uh, the head of data innovation at one of the UK's three top credit reference agencies, or am I calling CRAs or bureaus throughout this call? So please forgive me. What 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 are the top two or three AI themes that you are addressing now uh, that you potentially didn't have to consider, uh, say, a year ago? That's a good question. It's not only whether we were considering it, it's just also how much effort and how many discussions we're having these days. So as one would expect, large language models, ChatGPT, it's a common discussion topic in experience, as I'm sure it is in many other places. And it's not just how we use it, but also how do we stay ahead of the game? How do we understand the potential benefits, the risks? How do we leverage the new tools um, in an appropriate and suitable manner? Similarly, Fairness, transparency, again, at the heart of many discussions, we are a modeling and analytics function. So uh, more and more organizations were coming to us, asking us for support in those areas. And then, of course, consumer duty. It's not an AI-related one, but it does have aspects of AI that fit into it. So every time that an AI and ML uh, machine learning model is involved, these are also the key things to consider. None of this is very new. We're, we were... We all knew that they were coming our way. Uh, the difference is how much effort we're putting now. So, for example, uh, we've created an AI task force that's specifically designed to look into some of these tools. And it includes both hands-on data scientists, but people from legal, commercial, people from strategy and so on, just to have that diverse input and variety of thought. We do have loads of data. We have lots of consumer data. So there needs to be a balance between investigating those tools, but also being very mindful about giving access to those tools, investigating how we could use them without compromising those security aspects. So there's a lot of um, energy that's going into these areas. So you talked about transparency. Obviously, transparency in generative AI context is something very different from, as, as it were, the traditional 
a way that we look at interpretable models. What, what are the new challenges in that area that your stakeholders are asking you about? Now, actually, are there answers to them yet? Or is this still very nascent technology that you're still trying to, as it were, find your feet on as well? It very much depends on the organization, like larger organizations that have a lot of in-house data have remarkably different challenges um, compared to some of the startups and scale-ups that we work with um, that rely more on consumer-consented data, that uh, regularity of making sure that they're gathering the data in the appropriate form and consent and so on. So <laughs> there is a balance. Some of them have similar challenges in terms of how do we make the most where should we put our focus on first? Is it on models? Is it more on the customer experience? Is it more on the validating the models after we've built them with traditional techniques and so on? Um, and then it also very much depends on the area. So areas of credit risk tend to, um, they are more regulated. So they, they, they are investigating, they're putting effort in this space, but they're not jumping into it. Uh, whilst other areas um, that might be more flexible around marketing, around customer uh, communications might be easier for them to jump on board and try a few things out. So we do see differences across the board. And Paul, from, from your perspective, obviously the, the, one of the key products at Webio is, is the conversational AI aspect, which is, which is in, the, uh, in the realm of generative AI. How much engagement do you, do, do you observe with with credit rating agencies on the use of external data and some benchmarking methods. Is there a no, similar no, note? Not really. I, I think it comes into um, like a, like for every company, they're going to have a process flow and they're going to try and think of which process do I use to validate this part of a conversation? Like, do I do a light credit check? Do I do an identity check? Do I do a deeper identity check? I would say that the little bit of kind of insider game around this is you really should have different levels of of like identity check for different stages of your conversation. Like if you're starting out a marketing conversation, you really don't want a really heavy all in or expensive check because you don't know what's going to happen like two or three steps in your conversation later. Or if someone's rejoining a conversation, you might want a lighter touch check there too. So I guess we're, we're, we're going to have some level of kind of policy level access to, you're going to set policies as to where you want people to come in the conversation, what their idea is, when you want to run a credit check, how deep or broad or whatever credit check you want to do, who you do it with. You know, I, I think that we're not seeing, like we've never really seen people try to use multiple services, for instance. Like they tend to go for one service and then that's the service they use and onto the next thing, you know? So um, yeah, I, I'm I'm kind of interested in the other ways that, like if you're in a large language model world, what other things does it enable you to do? Like, you, you know, it's the, the phrase that people use is democratized everything. And I'm sure like if you would try to get access to tools before, it would cost you a lot of money or you've got to set up services. Can you do things with large language models that kind of allow you to do other things with credit check, but that it's it's actually acting, it's doing other jobs than just a credit check. It's doing other things. I think that's the interesting thing about um, what might be happening. Does that make any sense at all? Or am I rambling off the point here? It does make sense in terms of there's potential. Um, I, would, I would also say that there is a lot of work and analysis to be done. Um, we are used to 
some of the techniques that we have out there, some of the models that we have out there are quite well established, quite well validated, have passed rigorous checks. Same for like the, the data that is used for training. Again, very specific, strict processes to make sure that it is accurate before it goes into the training set. Now, that's one of the key challenges when we're talking credit risk or identity checks versus a wide range of other things like preparing slide decks or preparing um, blog posts uh, and communications. So I think there is a balance and the more that we understand these tools, the more that we understand and have control in terms of how we train them, ensure that they meet them our internal frameworks and, pol and, and policies, but also the, the, regu the regulatory frameworks, then the better position we would be to go, this is fit for purpose, this is not fit for purpose. I wouldn't say something is definitely not going to be used somewhere. It's just a matter of getting to the right point of maturity and understanding of a tool before we start using it everywhere. And, and, and so, I mean, obviously you, you, you've got has an organization access to some of the largest databases of, of data in, in the UK. And, and I know you've done a lot of work with open banking data. So the question is, is always more data a better thing? And, and I say that in the context also of things, things like uh, large language models. We, we hear that you know, they're, they're trained on the internet, as it were. We know that's not true, but they are nevertheless trained on very, very large data sets. Is that the strategic uh, asset now, or, or do you still find that you need to carefully curate what data goes into into models? Is there additionality in um, in having access to that data? So I'm, I'm a data person. So in general, I would go yes, more data is a good thing in general, and um, and so on. However, it is very important to draw attention that it's not just the volume of data that's impactful. It's the diversity of data. It's the representation across different segments, different use cases, and um, different locations and so on. So there is little benefit in gathering more and more of the same type of data versus finding ways to enhance your data set by including different data sources, by reaching out different consumer segments, different types of data, products, different organizations. And, and that would give a much richer understanding of what's actually happening in the economy, what's actually happening in your portfolios and what you could forecast and predict that might happen going forward. And something that's not mentioned as much when we're talking about like 10 AI and we're talking about like large uh, models is data storage. And it has become much more uh, cost efficient and it's not as much front of mind as it used to be uh, a few years back, but it's still costly and we are storing data like we've never stored data before. Uh, so being selective or at least mindful of the types of data that we store amount and the purpose of collecting data it's also a very important input in such discussions. There is more, and again, you've mentioned, Dan, you've mentioned open banking. There is a big focus on consumer consent. So there is a limited amount of time that you can keep data for specific uses and so on. So it's not about just gathering data because you can, but also gathering data because you need it for something specific. You've been very clear why you're gathering it, why you're storing it and how you're going to be using it. So it's not just a capability issue. It's are you doing something with it? Are you planning on using it for something good? Absolutely right. We we often talk about the cloud storage as if it is genuinely up in the cloud, uh, forgetting that it's uh, buried in some servers uh, somewhere in, in on, on the planet Earth. Um, an interesting uh, anecdote from 2015, uh, which is almost 10 years ago. In, in that one year, 
the, the world generated more data than its entire history of the human <laughs> existence uh, prior to that. And in terms of that aspect, so, I mean, you mentioned the, the duration of, of, you know, how long we can keep data for. Is that, is that genuinely changing now with, with the onset of consumer duty, i.e. that we, uh, we just don't hold on to data in perpetuity? Um, and a kind of a, just an extension of that is for that duration of time that, that data is kept, are there ways of using data that, that organizations outside yourselves are just not seeing the use of data in a specific, in some, some context? So, yeah, in, for open banking data, but for data, data in general, there has always been differences in terms of data retention. There has always been differences in terms of being very explicit about how you and um, why you gather the data. You can just gather as much as you want. You have to have a legitimate purpose for uh, gathering the data. Um, so that's that's always been the case. It's just that we, not in experience overall, as consumers and as organizations, are more, more mindful now about those requirements, those limitations, and just making sure that we consider them when we're building analytical models that rely on historic data, because it, not in all cases we can go five years back or six years back, it, it sometimes needs to be adjusted and our models need to be adjusted to reflect that. So that's that's definitely something that as data scientists and as modelers, we do consider more um, versus about 10 years ago that it was more, there were fewer data sources, they were more well-established, everyone knew exactly the, the windows that they were looking for. In terms of seeing other ways uh, that it might not be obvious. It's it's a tricky one because I don't know what might be obvious for everyone. Uh, obvious in my head is for financial institutions that are looking into or are already implementing more accurate customer views and improving um, their corresponding decision models, customer management, originations, and so on. Um, if you know me on more a personal level, obviously, you wouldn't be surprised when I mentioned the consumer aspect as well, because it's on us as the consumers as well, especially during times when we have the cost of living is front and center in people's minds. And we have is 50% of people underestimating or overestimating their expenditure, not saving enough. It's, it's quite important for consumers as well to have aggregated views of their um, behaviors. It's, um, it's quite impactful and beneficial for them to see where they are compared to their segments, their peers, because they can make more informed decisions, more educated choices about providers and products. And that sets us all up for a more secure future as consumers as well. So from an organizational point, but also from a consumer point, there are a lot of benefits. Yeah, I'm, I'm following a lot of that stuff every week on the Credit Shift podcast. And we, we check out all the... Um, you know, the little signs that, that consumers maybe aren't able to pay their bills or coming under pressure to pay their bills um, are, you know, there's a, there's a kind of an underlying wave of expenses that just keeps on rising and, and wages aren't right. That's rising at the same rate. So when people say the cost of living crisis, I mean, it's, it's like watching a little kind of financial tsunami roll in slowly, 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 but the water is just going up and up and up for people and they have to make different choices about what they're spending their money on. And so the the question around what can data be used for, I mean, from, from the company's point of view, was trying to transact with with people. 
like having pretty good use of credit scoring data and then tying that credit scoring data, as you were saying, to some idea of the the customer record or the the customer profile um, would seem to be kind of like more important than ever. And it just, the, the thing that I was reading about earlier in the week, Dan, was the idea of the customer data platform from within another application. You've got like your customer data platform that's saying, here's all the transactions I've had with this customer. Here's what they've asked me for. Here's how our conversations have evolved. Here's that record. That's something I can use to predict the next thing that this customer might want to do. And that turns out to be a lot of data. Um, Like, where does it go? Who's who's holding it? Who's processing it? How secure is that? And so I I guess I'm, I'm kind of coming to this from the point of view of e-business and thinking, hey, you know, there's onboarding, there's having a conversation, there's running maybe a credit conversation. At what stage can you use more data to make that like more more effective? And the other thing that that I've just been been looking at is, you know, the way you 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 might put a customer like actually the, the phrasing I was going to use there. You might put a customer through a process, right? Like you might put them through an ordeal. It's like, if you could fill out this form, I'll tell you at the end whether or not you qualify, right? And that form filling exercise might take them half an hour or whatever to do. And we kind of think about that as in the industry is like, oh, you get the form filled out and then you pass it on and then you get back a result. And it's like, no, yes, maybe a traffic light, right? But like, if you were doing that more effectively, they wouldn't have to get to the end of the form. You'd know, like, you know, lifetime lookups at each stage, you'd kind of know this is not going well, or this is going away that maybe we need to qualify differently. Like maybe this person is a much more vulnerable person than someone who's just looking for a loan. They're actually looking for a loan because they're vulnerable. And you weren't capturing that because your, your interaction forms were just kind of dead, really. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm 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 kind of thinking when I think about the other ways that we use data, it could be m- maybe my blind spot about the the way we use data is I'm kind of coming to it from a digitizing processes, making things easier, more effective. But maybe th- that's just my blind spot. Uh, maybe there's a bunch of other ways that that large language model approaches or new data approaches are opening up many more different types of services that I'm I'm not even kind of thinking of. Yeah, so and that's really interesting. So I guess from the perspective of having a cross-sectional view of a customer, i.e. from all of their interaction points, Marlena, is 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 there a, is there a way that or are you addressing the the inherent bias in data, just trying to, to essentially de-bias the data, which is endemic or embedded rather, sorry. Uh, in individual organizations uh, uh, decisioning and strategy processes is is there something that 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 we are missing the trick on having a cross-sectional view of everybody's interaction with a customer to get a as 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 close as possible to an unbiased view of somebody's financial behavior or is that a pipe dream and then I could say an unconventional view uh, when talking about biased data and yes you're you're right there's always going to be inherent biases because of specific people getting accepted for specific products or specific people even applying for specific products or working with specific organizations and and so on so 
my thinking in this space is what's, what are the standards that we're holding our AI or machine learning models? What are the standards that we're holding our new data sources versus the processes that are already well established, like logistic regression or the more traditional ways of gathering data uh, from surveys to um, an application form and so on? Because there could be biases there. And to be fair, there probably are biases there. My thinking is that with the newer techniques, with the newer approaches, with the new data sources, we're actively asking way more questions about data bias, fairness, transparency. And because these are front and center in um, people's minds when they are uh, evaluating these models, when they're taking these models through governance, because of the additional questions that are being asked and because of the additional effort that it's uh, put in place to check for those biases, I would argue that not that they're going to be completely unbiased, but there is a lot of focus in removing as much bias as possible, or at least taking for inherent biases, both from the data side, from the modeling technique side, and from the modelers and analysts that are used, uh, that are working with these types of data and models. So the more that we take a step back and go, are we doing this right? the less likelihood there is that things are going to be at least unnoticed. We're not going to be fixing everything, but at least we can we can have a better view of where these things are coming from. Okay, that's interesting. So it, it's also, it, so you, what you're explaining is essentially active data gathering as well as the, the passive data generation that we are, we, we, most people aren't aware of the, uh, the, the data crumb trail that they leave behind them. Uh, as soon as they walk out the door in the morning. So you're, you're talking about that active data gathering across all interaction points. Um, and then, Paul, I guess you, you, I mean, you, what you do at WebEA is very much that's sort of the heart of what you do because you, you, you've got solutions that literally talk to customers to elicit that data. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, actually the thing that was more in my mind was my background, original background is in market research. And uh, I was uh, then later on a, um, a researcher and so if you really are a researcher, one of the things you get like really caught up in is questions, um, like how a question is asked, the framing of that question, the, in, in the factor that you're catching with that question, and then the question sequence. And I'm reminded that that's very much almost reflected in prompting for um, a language model when you set up your prompt and uh, you can actually set up the LLM to answer in a different way by having a setup prompt by like giving more context, like asking it a question about, um, like if you ask it to generate a list of reasons that something might be biased in a question and that it might be gender biased in the question, right? And you ask it to run that and come back. And then the next thing you ask it to is, can you look at this question to analyze it for gender bias? It will actually be better at it having been asked the former question by setting it up. And it's, it's so there's, this, there's all these kind of little prompt chain techniques that are coming out now, like ch chain of thought, chain of verification. Um, it, there's a bunch of them coming, coming out now. And where, where that kind of comes back to me is when you're looking for bias in data or bias in conversations, like it's really sometimes as basic as the way you ask the question. Like how did the asking closed questions, asking open questions, we found that you, you can get like pretty good outcomes by going, 
would you like to meet at two o'clock or three o'clock? You go, okay, I've got two choices. It's a forced decision. Two o'clock. You go, great. That's pretty happy with that interaction. You go, yeah, it was fine. Right. Now, you, the only thing you might want to know is, is, did I get more choices? Like, did I get it like two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock? Um, but you reach this kind of level of topping out of how happy someone is. And the only way to get past it is to open the question and go, when would it suit you to meet? Right. And you go, Ooh, now match that one. Right. That's a really tough problem to solve. But like, if you can be so sophisticated that instead of saying, do you want that one or that one? You go, oh, when's good for you? And they go, oh, four o'clock. And you go, I look forward to it. And you go, they're so helpful. <laughs> Your response to it is completely different. So when you're like, when you're looking for how questions are asked, the sequence in which questions are asked, how you might phrase the introductions and the joins to those pieces of a conversation, that's how you end up with that kind of, oh, that was really nice. Or that was actually quite helpful. That kind of emotional response you get at the end of it. And so it's, it's uh, as much like, as I'm reminded of what you said there, but like, if you're paying attention to it, like in the first place, you're probably a good way down the line of solving that problem just because you're paying attention to it. So I think if you're paying attention to uh, how a conversation sequence is working, if you're paying attention to, could this be biased? Um, could this be asked in a way that's more open or less implicitly difficult? Like there's a bit in, in these uh, conversations for people who might be vulnerable. So in the trade, you call it uh, making it, is it making a disclosure? So you're putting someone into a situation where they feel comfortable making a disclosure about maybe their health, their financial situation, something that's happened in the work. And so those kind of conversations and how they're phrased and how they're um, structured is really important. And what you don't want to do is say, hey, LLM, generate a pretty random response for this really delicate situation and let's see what happens right you're you're not going to do that so that's why you know webio we 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 have to be very careful about the way the uh the ai is used very careful about simple things like how questions are asked sure you can use gen ai and stuff to 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 figure out what is it that the person has said like i'd love to meet at four o'clock tomorrow or it would be great if i could pay that bill on friday knowing what that bill is knowing what friday is knowing that that is an acceptable amount of time. You can use the AI in the background to figure out those kind of things, but I'd be very careful about generating a response and then just pushing that response straight to a customer. You'd always want a human eyes on that before you pass it on. So yeah, the long and the short of that, and that's a very long answer, is um, when you're, you're, you're looking at conversations, everything about conversational AI is about making sure that it's trained in the right way, that you've um, you know you've got the rights to to train that data. That's you know in this case it's our customers giving us rights to train, and then hand them back the training set and going is that okay? And then they can train labels and but it's all internal. Like it doesn't go anywhere. It's it's all in our own tools. So we're very very um, careful of that uh, that bias element and and giving our customers as much control of that as possible too, because one person's bias is another person's. Um, uh, no, that's that's how you get the result. Like you've got to do this thing, and someone else would throw their hands up and go, we're, we're, "We'd never do that." So you, you got to give each company a little bit of flexibility to uh, to define that for themselves. 
buy again. Bias is a it is a relative term, but uh, what you're explaining there, Paul, is this, this is a large component of the data generation process. Now, so Marlene, so do, how much work do you do in looking at the data generation process? Maybe from a synthetic data perspective, and actually, do, do you see do you see a rising role in in the use of synthetic data? And to an extreme, would you actually see that there are, there's a world where we only ever use synthetic data for certain use cases? I'm quite lucky okay, because I do work in an organization that have, we have a lot of data, and uh, one of the one of the key use cases for using that is within credit risk decisioning and so on. So, personal view, I don't I don't see us going to a point that we would only use synthetic data uh, for credit risk decisioning. Uh, we do we do have a lot of real consumer data um, to rely on. However, a key part of innovation is to never stop experimenting and looking at new techniques, revisiting established approaches, new lenses and so on. Um, so yes, we we have looked and we are looking into synthetic data and that helps us understand the robustness of analytical techniques, potential benefits, impacts of using that, impacts of using models built on synthetic data's input and again, balancing models on, built on purely synthetic data or um, a 70-30 split, 50-50 and so on. So just evaluating uh, what the changes are. They're not in production. It's, it is it is a research project. Um, however, we do work a lot with universities. We support them as student placements. We work with um, a vast range of financial institutions as well that needs to test our um, products using some test data. So having well-researched ways to create data that's similar in terms of distributions, in terms of functionality to real data can help us collaborate more easily with them and um, for purposes of education, for purposes of testing. And so it's, it, it is quite an important aspect, but I wouldn't see that in production for credit scoring uh, anytime soon. Again, personally. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a heavily regulated industry completely. And I guess uh, that we, we, there's the old adage, we use the, you know, the past to predict the future and knowing full well that the, the past will never occur again. I'm saying that in the context of uh, the cost of living crisis and maybe COVID as well, but these were, uh, these were step changes and societal step changes that, that we didn't have experience of at least in, in, in the observable uh, past history. How did you go about using experimentation to, you know, realize the value of data that you hold uh, to help businesses in those contexts? Because I know you, you, you've done some work in that space. Yeah. And, um, I know it's, it's not very easy, especially for hopefully once in a lifetime instances like COVID, um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't happen every um, so often, which is a very good thing. However, a big thing of what we do is like, trying to understand human behavior. So understanding how different segments of consumers um, react to, to a situation. So uh, even getting an understanding about how, um, how technology saves someone, whether they can shop online or whether they're more of a in-brands type of person can help understand the overall behaviors that they might have in similar situations. And that can that can get linked into COVID behaviors that a lot of people were forced to do a lot of things online, but also like with the reduction of branches, 
uh, of uh, high, uh, high street banks or specific ATM and placements and so on. So it, it helps us understand more widely how people would behave, how different segments would behave. And we've seen that with the cost of living crisis as well. The different segments are affected differently, but also they're making different decisions. So there are segments of the population that might not be as affluent, but they are very good at balancing their finances. They are very good at prioritizing what they need to pay. They are very good at planning for their weekly or bi-weekly grocery shop versus more impulsive shoppers and that might have more disposable income, but they might not have that ability to adjust their lifestyle or adjust their spending behaviors. So it's not just about exactly how much you're spending or where you're spending it, or it, it's more of a what's your attitude to managing your finances. And then that gets very, that is linked with what's your attitude to risk and repayments and how you're treating the different financial products that you might have. So it's, it's very tricky to find the balance between, oh, because this happened, we know exactly this is going to happen. But when we're looking at the population overall, you can see these trends, you can see those different segments, and then you can better understand and better start adjusting your models, your products, your communications, everything to make more sense for them. Yeah, you, you're unpacking the prognostic, well, causality, correlation, prognostic value of data, <laughs> the, the holy, holy grail triangle. And I, I guess one of the aspects that you, you probably will have seen is uh, seeing there's government intervention that has kept parts of the economy on life support mechanisms. So if we think about Although the uh, energy uh, payments support scheme, uh, various other interventions, um, does that pose a challenge when it comes to, to doing what you've just explained in terms of trying to understand genuine customer consumer behavior versus what, what they've been stimulated to do or not do by, by uh, exogenous interventions practice? But there's, there's always going to be exogenous factors that affect things like there's there might be cyclists in the news that affect consumers and we know that because if they hear about toilet roll that might be the first thought that comes to mind when they go to and um, to the supermarket so there's there's always those aspects that you you cannot control for all of them but again for government initiatives for things that apply to the UK economy in general the UK population in general it does just is, is one of the factors that you consider for that segmentation, for that analysis, rather than, oh, because this happened, we can't do anything about that. That's that's always going to change. Every time that there's a new initiative, things might get adjusted slightly. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the whole point. It's just appreciating that we cannot, it's forecasting, but we cannot predict everything to to the T. And ask ChatGPT to tell you what will happen tomorrow. <laughs> you probably could. Like, I, I bet you you could go to ChatGPT and ask it to generate profile descriptions, um, behaviors, like segments. I'm, I'm pretty sure you could ask it to generate a bunch of that stuff. Whether it's true or not, we don't know. If you're in the industry, you'll know. So that's the important thing. So just on, on the government point, so how much um, engagement, obviously you, you work very closely with, with the regulators, as you mentioned. How is that, I guess, a tripartite framework of the government, the regulator, I guess, but apartheid, I don't know the term. Uh, so yourselves and, and the industry, financial institutions, uh, how is that evolving now with the onset of uh, Gen AI, generative AI? Um, is, 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 are there some, some key underlying currents that you're, you're having starting to 
have to think about. You've mentioned the regulator, financial institutions, the CRAs and so on. And I think that's an important component there that's becoming more and more important, which is the actual consumers. That's quite important in terms of balancing the financial ecosystem because we are now seeing a trend that consumers are playing and are due to play a more critical critical role and of increasing importance in terms of financial literacy and consent and taking an active role in selecting the right products, the right providers for them. We do see um, an encouragement of consumers to be able to switch products more easily, to be able to be more in control of their data and them setting their data with the providers that they wish to do so. So for me, the, the the biggest challenge or the biggest component isn't necessarily data related, rather than consumer education related. And that, that's that's part on us as financial organizations, CRAs, the regulators is the same, uh, to responsibly support consumers to understand the benefits and potential risks that come with a, the wide range of Gen AI models that are out there and the tools that are out there. But also it's quite crucial for us as organizations to put controls and frameworks within our own organizations and teams to then ensure ethical use of the new tools in our everyday job or the models and the analytics that we build. So it's not the regulator says we do and then consumers just don't have a say. It is an ecosystem and they do have a lot of power these days and it's on us to support that and empower them even more with education. That's interesting. So so what you're saying is that the balance of power might be shifting towards consumers in, in some shape or form. But to, to kind of play the devil's advocate, is it not the case that a lot of value-add services and actually basic services are, are not accessible to people unless they surrender access to their data? So if we think about some of the loyalty schemes which are out there, uh, and I'm not going to name supermarkets, but there are some big players in the UK who will offer cheaper products to the customers if they sign up for a loyalty scheme. Um, and by, by the dint of doing that, they're surrendering access to their data. So is, am I just being a bit too cynical here or, or, or do, do you see this, this trend towards superficial consumer empowerment? But in reality, they still have to surrender the same level of access, if not more, to their data. So I, I, I don't think you're being cynical, but I also don't think it's a superficial aspect that they have to unwillingly or unknowingly surrender their data. Uh, I view that more as part of the overall direction where we are heading, that consumers benefit from that. They have a greater understanding of, and again, I'm, I'm not working for, um, for a, a retailer, but they do gain uh, more information about their spending habits. They do get rewarded. They have the option of choosing alternative um, supermarket chains and so on. It's more about being part of an ecosystem and being on top of your finances, getting access to your data, knowing how your data is used and used from, <laughs> from who, um, and then how that supports you meet your own goals, meet your own objectives and as part of that ecosystem. And I, I appreciate that some people might go, oh, but that that seems like a, a one-way street. However, I do think that we as consumers have a lot of say in that, perhaps more say than what we had about 10 years ago. 
and we might not make the most of, the most of it. Just now, I, we've seen that with open banking hasn't taken up as much as we were expecting after five years of it being launched. But we do see more and more consumers going, you know what, I'm going to switch different provider. You know what, I'm going to use a different service to get a better product, a better um, deal and so on. So from that perspective, and again, it all goes back to control and education for consumers. The more that you know how your data is used, the more you can use that for your benefit overall in your financial well-being. Less cynical view <laughs> than yours, Dan. I've been following this with the digital wallets and the Apple Pay and stuff like that. And um, just the, there seems to not have been the uptake of products that are like personal finance products, like personal budgeting tools, personal assistance to help you manage your debt, etc. And so... While we know around this table that, yeah, the technology is there to make that happen for you, like you could have an assistant on your phone that will help you manage all that, the, the behavior just hasn't followed that. It's not what people actually do. So the, I think the, the proposition was that, okay, if you go to a website of a utility or a major provider of services, that they would now have to be structured in a manner that they would have to make you aware of the choices that you're making. So, hey, I'm offering you product A versus product B, but as a service, maybe I didn't probe enough about how much you understand financial services. Maybe I didn't question enough about your background and the, the context that you're making this decision in, and therefore you didn't make an informed choice. And so there's a little bit coming in, I think, of if you're providing services, you're going to have to have like a level more flexibility about how you probe questions and respond to them so that you elicit that duty, the customer duty, and you, you're compliant under that framework. And that's fairly wide. Like that's a fairly wide framework when you look at it in terms of the amount of businesses that that applies to. Um, so yeah, some of, some of the thoughts on that are, I think that one area it'll show up in is, is how you conversationally interact with people and whether it's themselves driving to a purchase you still have to probe and find what the situation is. That's spot on, Paul, and that's a big part of the upcoming consumer duty discussions that um, a lot of organizations are part of just now. And it's that making sure that you're offering the best and suitable services to consumers, that you inform them of the products at a, a, at a level and at a way that they understand what the product you're offering mm. to them is. So I think... Yes, the regulator the, um, does play a big role, but then organizations that are more transparent are going to make that easier for consumers. And that's that's just the cycle of how a uh, good service happens. It's going to be interesting, though, because it's going to take a mindset shift. Like if you're if you're working in marketing for 25, 30 years and you, you know, you've got that famous duck in the middle offer where you go, would you like this very expensive stereo, this crappy stereo or this stereo in the middle, which is kind of nearer to this expensive stereo, but not as quite as expensive. Everyone goes for the duck in the middle, right? Um, and there's a myriad of marketing um, techniques for, for helping people make certain choices that benefit the company. And I, I think that that, kind of fundamentally challenges some of the prospect, like some of the marketing practices and what marketing is. 
to uh, for and for a lot of companies and I could, that's why I'm still I'm I'm still thinking my way through it. I know what uh, I have these uh, active conversations with um, uh, with some people around choice structure and like what is marketing? Like is it information giving? Is it eliciting desire? Is it creating a need where there is no need? Or is it surfacing a need? Like and I, I I'm just fascinated by this question when a simple thing like a bank saying would you like loan A or loan B and it's like this is like what normally they call it something like silver and gold like that has zero communications value right it nothing about that helps me make a decision so what does marketing become in that situation where financial institutions trying to offer you product that kind of fundamentally changes the the lens i think maybe more than people realize well, it's, it, it, I mean, it, it does and it's uh it's it's never predictable really which drives what, what drives what and where? I mean, it's, it's in some ways a chicken and egg situation. The, the marketing drives consumer demand, but then that gets a life of its own and will take, take it and people start dictating where marketing goes. And a great example is the iPhone on Blackberry. Uh, nobody in my mind would have thought that the iPhone would, would destroy the Blackberry, but what, what about 10 years ago? Well, <laughs> you did. Uh, okay. Nobody except for Paul, uh, uh predicted that. Uh, but yes, that, that was a great example of, of consumers driving driving, driving the market. And with the onset of, I guess, of new financial products and the way that we spend money, um, Marlene, where do you see the biggest unknowns that you might need to, 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 to face into as an industry, say, over the next two to three years? We are seeing more tech organizations going into some slightly more traditional finance um, areas in terms of like offering some savings accounts and so on. Uh, so I think one of the, the biggest challenges of more traditional institutions is that customer experience and public app interface, like that is to do business with um, because consumers have come to accept a certain type of speed in doing things, slickness in the applications, um, intuitiveness of navigating around websites and apps and so on. So I think that might be something that we start affecting the finance world as well. We've seen a lot of challenger banks as well coming in with newer apps um, that are, again, getting some parts of the demographic, maybe not for like um, salary deposits, but for a range of other things that slowly they might build into more primary um, facilities. So it's going to be quite interesting that user experience, that application interface, I think. Mm. What you're saying is uh, the, 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 the big old-fashioned uh, giants, they need to get their act together and uh, <laughs> uh, on the uh, UX user experience. I know we're coming to the end of our time and I, I was just thinking about what is it about the generative AI interaction experience that might be a similar kind of change as the iPhone so, you know, iPhone, when it came out, was like it had a couple of unique bits to it, right? It was touch screen, which was a different interface. It gave it a kind of an infinite scroll capability because you could infinitely change what went on it. And then it had a new concept of the app and the app store behind it. So it 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 turned out to be like a really interesting kind of platform or user experience change that drove everything else. And I'm just I know we're not there, right? But if you said to um, 
ChatGPT, let's just keep it one that everyone knows. You you go there and you say, hey, you know, can you create a, given that I owe company X and company Y something else and my salary is whatever, could you suggest the best possible payment plan and letter that I could send to this company that would elicit the best possible response, right, for me? And it's like, well, that's an interface, like that's an interaction paradigm. Like, could you, what happens next if if it can generate plans, it can generate offers, it can generate policies, it, like they, it, it just becomes just a, a whole different way of experiencing how you choose a product or how you get a product, I think. But then my argument would be, where's the accountability? If you follow that advice, like if if you pay a financial advisor, sure, they have an accountability. They've they, they have a responsibility to advise X, Y, and Z. For and that that's true for many professions. Like sure. the doctor has a, yeah. a responsibility and accountability. So I think that that's not to say that ChatGPT isn't good for a lot of things. And um, however, that that's that's the point of education of the public is that at some point the people are responsible and accountable for whether they decide to take that as a ground truth, as a starting point to um, start their investigations or just as a as a prompt in terms of, I'm thinking of coming up with a, a Christmas lunch menu, what should mm. they cook? Like it's yeah, it's yeah, the yeah. level of importance of the decision made of the back of it. Yeah, I I, I think that if, if you have, like we follow a couple of examples every week in this and um, like it's just pure curiosity in my part. Like it's just pure curiosity as to what happens. But it's uh, it, it's specific businesses. Like last week we covered one on a tax company in the states, and what they did is they trained up all a specific custom LLM. They it was just to answer your tax questions, and the customer for it was the tax um, consultancies. So tax the tax agent would run the process, would like run the the generative AI. They'd come up with a uh, a shape of a policy or a shape of a something they wanted to sell to someone as a, this is the way you should run your taxes. But the authority of the agents was the authority of the, um, the company, the tax consultancy was then standing behind the recommendation. So it's like, we've had our, our human agent review. This seems perfectly reasonable. And they're giving it out to you as, you know, maybe you think about this approach to running your taxes and that was really interesting. It was like that consuming that the nature of that service has kind of changed in that cycle somewhere. And I don't know how it's all going to 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 work out, but it kind of think I, it kind of strikes me that we're we are. It's called many things, but for today's conversation, it's like it is an iPhone moment that we're in. We just don't know what the equivalent of the App Store is, and we don't know what the equivalent of the other behaviors are going to be because it's early days. So. Fascinating conversation, Marlena, with you. I know we're, we're uh, out of time now, but uh, yeah, thank you very much for your insights uh, from the uh, credit rating agency perspective and also from a data innovation perspective. Uh, I hope, uh, yeah, well, I've certainly learned new things today and uh, Paul, as ever, uh, your insight is always there. Thank you very yep. much for the invite, Paul. Uh, it, was, it was great hearing your insights as well, Paul, from a quite different um, industry and perspective. That was quite insightful. Thanks for joining us for that amazing conversation. And remember to subscribe so you don't miss any of these future leaders talking about the changes in the credit and collections business. 
And also, why not drop into webio.com and see what we're doing these days. 